Hi everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1 through 4 of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at boschsecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast from the LPRC. This is the latest in our weekly uh, update series. I'm joined by colleagues uh, Tony D'Onofrio and Tom Meehan and our producer Diego Rodriguez. And today we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on around the U.S., around the world, uh, particularly with a focus on retailing uh, and in particular uh, protection of uh, the retail places and, of course, mostly the retail people that are shopping and are working there. Um, so let's start off again uh, as we're still find ourselves in a global pandemic. Um, albeit uh, restrictions or uh, let's say protective measures uh, continue to wane in particular the mandates around those protective measures. Um, But we'll go a little bit about uh, it still is a global pandemic in that the amount of humans continually being infected on a daily basis is still incredibly high uh, estimates between three and six million um, people on earth uh, died primarily because of COVID. Those are those uh, discussions are best left to, left to the scientists that are relying on uh, autopsy uh, and other sort of uh, community level data uh, uh, to add to that individual level data from autopsies and so on. Um, but it still continues to be a huge issue, a huge problem, uh, and it does severely affect uh, and still can cause death for many of us uh, on Earth. And so we'll keep talking about it um, for a little bit more. Uh, the dynamics. Uh, are pretty incredible. Um, we see this BA.2 variant out, somewhat similar to Omicron, uh, maybe even more transmissible. Uh, the seriousness of it's yet to be determined. I read one study that said it's pretty mild, and if you've had Omicron, then it's uh, very mild to nothing. Others saying the opposite. So again, it depends on who you sample and what phase of the disease state that the individuals are, uh, is what I'm taking away from reading the literature. Um, and just leveraging the research training that I've got uh, in a very, very different area, even though as we've often discussed on here, some of the dynamics are pretty similar. Um, So going over to uh, looking at those studies real quickly, the the big thing that they're continuing to looking at is the antibody responses. Again, we have an innate and an adaptive immune system that's very, very complex. Um, And so it's very difficult to understand. And so they simulate antibody responses and to a certain extent, the cellular response that our bodies activate. Again, according to what I'm reading in the research, um, B cells and T cells and other uh, types of activity that where bodies uh, generate to combat uh, and eliminate disease uh, or at least suppress the seriousness of it. Um, And so we'll stay tuned on getting an idea, but the data is still remixed there. I'm looking at the... uh, the vaccine, we've long talked about the way out of this um, pandemic and the way forward through futures. Again, uh, better and better vaccine candidates that allow for reducing transmission and infectivity of a given virus 
uh, an individual uh, might not be infected or infected nearly as readily. Um, as we know, the, the current vaccines are designed to reduce the seriousness of disease, even though sometimes some studies show it reduces uh, the likelihood of infection slightly. Others show that it doesn't and so on. So uh, a little mixed, but we do know that uh, I still look at data that show that vaccinated people, particularly if they've been double vaccinated or uh, if that's the protocol, still seem to much better handle and have uh, uh, by an uh, order of magnitude, uh, much lower likelihood of being seriously infected uh, or, or and then even more so uh, uh, being a fatal outcome. So um, at this point right now, looking at uh, vaccinations around the globe, starting with the United States now, just over a quarter of a billion Americans have been vaccinated now uh, out of estimates between 310 and 340 million Americans. So now you can see the idea here with 200. Uh, 54, 55 uh, million Americans now vaccinated. Um, uh, globally, we've passed now the 5 billion mark, 5 billion humans on earth have now been vaccinated with one of the COVID, one or more of the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, they continue to add uh, vaccine candidates, again, uh, trying to look at reducing infectivity, uh, infection, likelihood and seriousness level um, and so you're seeing 118 human clinical trials at this point, uh, 51 candidates in phase one trials, um, looking at safety with a little bit of efficacy peaks here and there. Phase two trials that become larger trials now looking at dosing and, and uh, as well as uh, efficacy. And then, of course, the large scale uh, double blind randomized controlled trials uh, now in phase three. There are 50 candidates that have moved into that category. So. A lot of movement in that area of therapies, um, taking a look at the therapies, because not only do we need a good vaccine, uh, we need better surveillance, by the way, on the front end, better testing, but better vaccines uh, and, of course, better therapies. Uh, if, the, if the virus escapes the vaccine completely or in part, uh, in other words, it's uh, not, it's still getting around it. Um, what do we do about therapies? We see a whole bunch in the, in the uh, hopper here coming out as well. Um, the U.S. active program alone has conducted 30 therapies on studies, um, and there are hundreds more programs like the U.S. active program. So uh, things like an arthritis med, um, but some of the therapies seem to be highly efficacious, but may interact with other meds that uh, humans might be on. Um, that we might have also uh, others. They're still trying to understand the longer term effect in addition to what they've found in phase one or two or even uh, early on in phase three. Um, so stay tuned to some of that. Um, but some of the studies that show negative effects, again, it's like what we do in criminology. Um, it may be one part that it's just not efficacious against the disease in a human. Uh, it may have worked well on the computer in silico or in test tubes or Petri dishes or other, uh, or even in animal models, if you will. But just in the humans, it's, we're so much more complex uh, and dynamic. So uh, but they help, they add, even negative trials or trials that don't show efficaciousness or effectiveness um, can be very helpful in learning what not to do or how to do it better. Um, so look for that. There's a lot going on, over 200 monoclonal therapies under trial. Uh, just one program alone is in heavy testing and 40 antivirals. So a lot on the uh, vaccine front, a lot on the therapy front, um, which again is the way out of this uh, this pandemic and hopefully a way uh, not to a pathway not to enter another one.
anytime soon. Um, looking now over at the LPRC, we're excited. Uh, we've got a new team member starting in uh, just over just about two weeks, just over a week and a half. Uh, more to come on uh, our new research scientist who's coming on. Uh, that would add the most we've had in history and the most educated or well-trained team in history of the LPRC. And again, this is our 22nd year. Um, so we're very, very excited uh, adding comp very complementary skill set as far as research capability, um, technical capability, um, very good at, uh, at things like understanding R in a much deeper way than those of us uh, know a little bit or a lot about statistics or statistical packages. Uh, so he goes way beyond that as well as uh, pretty complex mapping capability to add to the mapping capability of Orion San Angelo and, and, uh, and Dr. Sarah McFan on our team uh, and a little bit that uh, Dr. Corey Lowe and myself know. So we should have five of us that range from absolute experts to um, near novice, novices like myself as far as I know what I need, but uh, with the complex software available today, uh, we're going to have a team members here. We're also, because of the ESRI, ArcGIS, um, and MapLarge and Cap Index and other support, um, we're going to be able to do some very amazing things to support theft, fraud, and violence research, as well as some of the green case uses, use cases. Excuse me. Um, so I, I'm beyond excited about what we're going to be able to do here. I'm going to turn a little bit here to some of the uh, the what we do as our strategy, our research strategy here at the LPRC. It's three pronged. The first thing is we're trying to understand the dynamics and the typology of, of certain theft, fraud, or violence uh, issues that we have, whether it's an event or a pattern that we've got. We need to look at a typology. What does this look like? Let's let's take violence. Are we talking about uh, stranger to stranger violence? Are we talking how aggressive is that? Are we talking uh, stranger and uh, or excuse me, non-stranger to stranger? Uh, is it, did it start somewhere else and spill over or end up in our retail environments, the parking lot and or the stores, offices or DCs? Um, these things are complicated. And so what we're trying to do is sort that out, working with absolute experts, not only on the research side around the country and the world uh, and our own team, but also with the retail practitioners that deal with uh, the situations and have an incredible amount of knowledge. Uh, so we're pulling any and every report that we can find around the globe that deals with person-to-person -person, uh, aggression, uh, again, whether it's stranger, stranger or not, um, and come up with typologies. And so <clears throat> we're, we're doing that with fraud online or in store or both, some interaction there. And then there are different types of fraud online. And I mean, as you all know, hundreds of different types, uh, that is a typology in itself as well as in store types of fraud. Um, so stay tuned on that. Um, as well as typologies around theft. So looking at that, the dynamics, the size, the scope, you know, the scale, if you will, uh, it's a big area. Look for uh, Corey Lowe, Dr. Lowe's uh, ARCS program and others that we're working on to much better and more accurately measure issues, where they're happening, how they're happening, uh, when they're happening, how much uh, they're costing and things like that. The second uh, key priority on our LPRC research uh, agenda is understanding and describing total crime event harm. If somebody steals one thing or a lot uh, from a place or a person, if somebody commits a robbery, a burglary, whatever the type of victimization that we're dealing with, how much harm is generated? How much harm uh, psychologically or traumatically is generated? 
against an individual or individuals that were there and or their loved ones, describing individual harm. The next is describing place harm. What are the dynamics that are created if you wipe out a category, uh, certain SKUs, uh, or if somebody there has been exposed to a weapon or huge, large-scale, blatant theft uh, where there's aggression, people can be traumatized temporarily or permanently, as can their loved ones. So we're looking at the place harm generated as well as individual harm. And then finally, community harm. These crimes create a lot of harm in the community. We see retailers closing places because of the crime exposure and the vulnerability of their people and their, their customers uh, to, to rampant crime. So you can see the, the effects on the community and the near place, uh, those places that are proximate to them, the neighbors, those that depend on those locations, as well as the tax base and others. Um, <clears throat> having to send law enforcement there and not somewhere else to handle some of the victimization and so on. So what are the dynamics of harm? That's our second priority after trying to better describe and understand uh, the dynamics and typologies of crime. Uh, the third and final where we've spent most of our time over the years, and that is protective research and development. How do we now, using the first two, particularly the first one, the dynamics is step-by-step -step pathway of a criminal to and from a place, left of bang, at bang, and right of bang. What does that look like step-by-step? -step? What are aiming points or targets for us? And then how do we best deter those people? How do we best, if that doesn't work, disrupt those people? If that doesn't work, document those people um, for later action. So that's just kind of a, a simplistic, even though it may not seem, description of the LPRC, that we have a very uh, firm strategy. Uh, we've aligned our research science team to that strategy. We've prioritized the projects we're going to be working on, on anti-theft, anti-fraud, and anti-violence, uh, taking into account those three, those three components of our strategy. So... Uh, I'm excited to continue to let you all know. Uh, now with five of us that are researchers, you're gonna see one to two from each of us research in action. There's sort of a research for action briefs coming out. Uh, our producer, Diego Rodriguez is on now. He is setting up a, or has set up a schedule so that all of our membership uh, will see and be able to benefit from an ongoing flow of research coming out of the LPRC starting this month. Um, to add to the over 320 past reports that we've already done um, that are in our knowledge center. So stay tuned for more on the research um, on that, from that front. Uh, we're also right now on heavy planning on our um, three summits, excuse me, now four summits, because uh, the innovation working group is coming out with a SOC and sensor summit that will occur in Gainesville, date to be determined. Um, you'll see uh, the product protection summit, uh, where you just had discussions yesterday on where that's going to be located um, and when uh, we had to be determined right this minute. Um, you'll see also the violent crime summit will take place in Philadelphia. Uh, we'll, we'll come out with the date soon. Um, and then finally, the supply chain protection summit. Uh, and all of them will come out pretty soon here with the agenda, the location, and of course, the timing uh, with the invites to our membership and our law enforcement and other partners to come and join us to work on these issues uh, supported by our research and others. So good stuff coming up. Um, again, always put in your calendars, uh, LPRC impact again in Gainesville, Florida, the first week in October. So go to uh, our website again, lpresearch.org. For more information, follow us on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, 
as well. Uh, we're at operations at lpresearch.org. Um, let me also, so I want to thank Tony and I want to thank Tom for these great insights. I want to thank Diego for the production work and Tom as well. Um, and everybody stay safe, stay in touch. So Tony, let me go over to you and how, if you can light us up and let us know what's going on in the world. Thank you very much, Reed. And uh, I went back and actually reread Deloitte's uh, retail outlook for 2022. And I, I did it for a couple of reasons. One, we're on all this craziness. What were some of the forecasts before all this craziness that's going on around the world with the war in Ukraine and also the rising inflation? But this is what was expected uh, for this year. 54% expected this year to uh, grow 5% up to 5% and 32 expected to grow more than 5% in the retail industry. And at the margin level, 38% expected to be stable, 32% expected to be higher, and 30% expected to be lower. The opportunities that we're seeing for this year, going into this year, were favorable consumer behavior, uh, retailers the ability to use inflation as an opportunity to improve margins, and take price reset promotional cadence uh, approaches over buying and discounting approaches. The challenges going into the year were retail bifurcation, which uh, that means uh, basically uh, the haves and the haves not in terms of uh, strong brands going one way and then price focused retailers taking a different approach to the market. And I've written about this in the past. Uh, the second one, is employee shortages are going to hamper growth. Supply chain disruptions will also hamper growth. And consumers are being more and more demanding on delivery. The winning retailers, so the ones that are doing the best in terms of retail, this is what they're focused on, tapping higher margin revenue streams, resetting physical stores to, to be more ready for omni-channel, expanding digital capabilities, incorporating social and governance policies, environmental, social and government policies, engaging in M&A, in mergers and acquisitions, enhancing data privacy and security, modernizing the supply chain, and making the workforce future ready. In terms of technologies that they see uh, being very optimistic is coming about in the next five years, the following is what uh, the winning retailers so that will happen in the next five years. First of all, voice commerce will be widely used. Retailers will in increasingly engage consumers through digital goods. Uh, Staff-free or cashierless stores will be common. And, and this one was interesting. Cryptocurrencies will be widely used by retailers and consumers alike. This is what the winning retailers saw as being optimistic in happening over the next five years. Let me switch topics to another very interesting insight this past week. Some great data from Visual Capitalist summarizing the shipping and logistical costs for Amazon. In 2011, Amazon spent 18% of net sales on logistics. In 2021, so last year, that cost jumped to 32% of net sales. Uh, so that's a huge increase in terms of what they spend in terms of logistical uh, costs. But don't cry for Amazon, as the report said, because Amazon uh, makes a lot of uh, profit um, and revenue. 
in two short years from, from 2019 to 2021, sales soared to 469 billion from 280 billion, and their market share cap uh, is researched towards 1.7 trillion. Uh, but those fulfillment costs are, are in a challenge for 2021 shipping and fulfillment costs were 151.8 billion. Um, and and that uh, basically that cost is massive when you look at it a different way. On a per minute basis, they are spending. So this is per minute, $288,000 on logistical costs, but they're also selling nearly a million dollars in goods per minute. So, but they are spending an awful lot of money on logistical costs. Uh, Amazon, with all those costs, is generating a lot of profit. In fact, they generated 33 billion in profits in 2021. One reason uh, for this is that the majority of Amazon's product actually don't come from all those products that they sell you online. Amazon Web Services, which accounts for 50% of their operating profits, but only represents 13% of the sales. So the, the real profitability is an AWS or Amazon services. And let me end this week with a new article series that I just started on, that I call Then and Now, the surprising start of your favorite retail formats and technologies. And so what I'm highlighting some interesting retail formats, how they started and where they're at today. And uh, for in the first article, I highlighted three. I started out with the department stores. Uh, so when was the first department store? Several countries take credit for opening the first department store. In the UK, Harding, Howell, and uh, Grand Fashionable Magazine opened in London in 1796. And they had on a product ensemble that resembled a department store, and at that time it included furs and fans, haberdashery, jewelry, clocks, millery and hats, and again, it resembled a department store. Many others give the credit for the port, uh, first department store to Le Bon Marché, which opened in France in 1852. This Parisian location evolved into a multi-product development masterpiece and actually had input in terms of the design from Louis Augusta Bellot and also from Gustave Eiffel. They actually contributed to the design of the building and it still is a very attractive store to go to in Paris. Uh, John Wanamaker brought the department store to the United States in 1875 when he bought a rail freight depot in Philadelphia and basically filled it with a bunch of specialty stores and he introduced a bunch of innovations, some of which are used today, price tags, and aggressive advertising programs. I included this department store as go first because they were really the ones that were seen as being threatened to go out of business. Uh, and so they, they, everybody was talking about the end, but actually for 2021, uh, department store sales were very strong. They grew 22%. And according to the Wall Street Journal, even Amazon is planning to open a series or large physical shopping centers this year that are compatible to department stores. That's a little bit of the history and where we're at with department stores. Next, where are we supermarkets? The, the world's first supermarket was Piggly Wiggly, which opened its door in Memphis, Tennessee in 1916. Before the supermarket, customers would give their shopping list to clerks, 
mostly mom and pop stores who pick the goods and typically you paid higher because of all that labor cost. The self-service supermarket reduced overhead costs and even consolidated, especially retail stores like butchers and bakeries into one store. So that was then, where are they now? Well, in the latest Deloitte 2022 Global Powers of Retailing supermarket, which, which are part of the fast consumer goods segment represent 3,396 billion dollars or 66 percent of the total revenue of all the top global 50 retailers so it's a uh, it's a really a sector that now dominates retailers in fact the top five retailers make up 33 percent of total revenue of the top 250 and nine out of the top 10 global retailers generate major revenue of what started in 1916 as the uh, first supermarket. And finally, in this first part, I talked about the barcode and the introduction of the barcode and what that did to retail. And it's interesting where it started. So today's barcode, which is printed on every single consumer package you can imagine, started out as a finger drawing on a Miami beach by inventor John Woodland in the late 1940s. The inspiration was a frustrated supermarket manager who pleaded with the Drexel Institute to come up with some way of getting shoppers through the store quickly. And they were pushed along uh, by a whole bunch of folks, including Kroger, who in 1966 uh, signed off a letter uh, with a despairing wish for a better future. And they said, just dreaming a little, could an optical scanner read the price and the total of the sale, leading to faster service, more productive service, which is needed desperately. We solicit your help. So the first patent for the barcode was actually issued in 1948, but we actually did not scan the first item until 1974. And the first item was actually a pack of Wrigley chewing gum, uh, which was scanned on June 26, 1974 at a, a supermarket in Marsh. It was Marsh Supermarket in Troy, Ohio. Fast forward 50 years later now, today more than 6 billion times the barcode is scanned around the world every single day. So we've come a long way with department stores, supermarkets, and the barcode. And with that, let me turn over to Tom. Hello, everybody. Thank you, Reed. Thank you, Tony. I am uh, taping this podcast, and I'm actually in Chechnya, the Czech uh, Republic, so Central Europe right now, and I uh, want to give a quick update on the Ukraine crisis. Uh, to start, there are news reports here uh, in Central Europe that are a little bit different, but I think they're starting to come to the U.S. Um, there are several people that live within the in the confines of Russia that don't believe there's a war. Uh, they've been told that it's an exercise, a training exercise, and there's actually been reports of POWs, prisoners of war, captured by the Ukrainians, young Russian soldiers, very young uh, uh, men who are saying that uh, it is a training exercise and that they're not at war. Uh, so that's interesting news that's coming out. Additionally, Russia is basically shutting the internet off. So they're following kind of suit to what China has done even more extreme and not allowing uh, the, the open internet. Uh, this is not uncommon in communist countries, but a little bit unheard of here um, in, in this day and age to shut a country of that size down, especially with the global 
and economic impact it has. Uh, there's also been some laws changed uh, for media, which basically makes it impossible to be an independent news consultant or news agency in Russia. Uh, makes it a crime to report certain things. So lots of lots of things going on there. Social media um, has a, a lot of social media services have completely shut down or are being blocked. And there are numerous reports of people that are using social media to communicate. So uh, Instagram uh, and uh, using Instagram direct messages to communicate that after they send their messages, their accounts are then deactivated or blocked. So Lots and lots going on from that that front, a very unfortunate situation. Um, numbers all over the place for the amount of casualties uh, there in Russia and uh, civilian casualties. And I, I think that you know, this is unfortunately going to be a longer event than I think some people thought it would be. Additionally, the supply chain issues or potential supply chain issues, just talk about that uh, most likely will happen. Let's talk about within Russia right now. Uh, basically, Russia has been cut off from import-export, so eventually they'll run out of basic supplies that they can't make there. So this is a, a daunting and dangerous thing for the Russian uh, government to deal with and the people of Russia. Uh, and then because of airspace restrictions, and basically, so what occurred is uh, most airlines or countries restricted their airspace to Russia, so Russia did the, uh, in a retaliatory matter, did the same thing. This changes commercial air travel. Um, and some trips, it adds two to three hours of time because you have to fly around above or underneath. And when you have to fly longer, you need more fuel, which in turn causes the cost of flights to go up. Uh, even if fuel wasn't on the rise, it would cause flights to go up. And this is the same impact it has um, for air shipments. So if you're shipping something via air and you used to fly over Russia, and now you have to fly around it or above it, uh, the flight is longer, which requires more fuel, which makes it heavier, which drives the cost up. So while you may not see it today, there are some impacts that will face all of us um, around international travel as well as supply chain. And then companies like FedEx and UPS saying that they'll no longer deliver to U the Ukraine or Russia, Ukraine because it's not safe, Russia because um, they're making a stance also further exasperates the issue of getting things in and out of that region. So we'll continue to monitor it uh, to date. It's not having a substantial impact uh, outside of the unit, uh, outside of Russia. Uh, one thing that we're seeing is a huge uh, amount of cyber attacks from that region. So uh, a couple weeks ago, you were seeing ransomware and attacks around, uh, happening every 12, 11 to 12 seconds. Now you're seeing every three to four seconds. So a substantial uptick, more than double the amount of uh, attacks coming to Western nations. So we'll continue to monitor that. The risk is definitely increased, so something to keep our eyes on. Switching gears to the U.S., uh, the payment, um, the digital payment provider is Zella. Uh, Zella has been having challenges with scammers or, or people that are social engineering and getting people to give them money as posing as bank associates. There was actually a Wall Street Journal write-up and a New York Times write-up about this. Um, and what it was is you had a, a person who was defrauded of $500 and Bank of America did not re, um, refund them that money because he in turn gave his money to someone, social engineered scam. So this opens up the door of these middlemen who aren't banks, who don't have to follow the rules of banks, but just their transfer apps, 
what the impact is and how fraud will be addressed in the future. Zella is, has more than double the volume of Venmo. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's around $500 um, billion that was transferred through it. And it's more than double the $290 uh, million, billion, sorry, that were through uh, Venmo throughout COVID. Again, this is the, these apps are designed to transfer money. So they are middlemen, if you will. A little bit different than a PayPal because PayPal is actually a bank. But, but what Venmo and Solid is, they hook up to your card or your bank account and they transfer money. It's very, very common. Uh, if Nowadays, if someone doesn't bring their wallet, forget someone pays for lunch, you can just sell them or Venmo the money. Um, so we're, that's definitely a space that we're going to have to watch. And it's a kind of an untapped space of who owns the fraud. Um, it's similar to wire transfer fraud or business email compromise. The challenge is generally the person perpetrating the fraud tricks someone into giving them their money. So this is becomes this isn't traditional credit card fraud where someone takes the card. This isn't bank fraud where someone gets that. So it's a very very challenging one to approach. So with that, we will uh, continue to watch it and see what's going on. Uh, in that space. And then last, it, it is tax time. And we, we throw this reminder out often that there are a ton of tax scams out there that are coming up. So if you're getting uh, people calling you or getting phishing emails on it, just always be mindful to double check before you click on an attachment or look at something. There's a lot of misnomers about just looking at something and not entering credentials is safe. But the reality is just clicking on anything really could open yourself up to malicious code. So we want to be mindful of that with tax time and the heightened amount of information that uh, people are sharing uh, uh, intentionally and how scammers or social engineers can take advantage of that. Uh, a little short today, but um, I will be back with you in the U.S. next week. Back over to you, Reed. All right. Well, again, thanks so much, Tony and Tom, uh, for all the great insights um, and by the way, Tony, I thought that was fascinating, the, the, that flashback. I love that angle and help us all think and understand where things came from. But it's just interesting on top of that. And I know that Frank W. Woolworth evidently played some role in increasing theft by increasing convenience and was one of the first anyway that I guess took goods out from under the glass so he didn't have to employ so many people and he could increase his margins. And But with that access, that low friction, you know, that the customers started to experience came a lot of theft. So that was somewhat of a watershed for shoplifting, evidently. So thanks again, both of you, for so many great insights. Diego, for production as well. Everybody stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast, presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more Crime Science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.